my name's um, Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, just in case we never met. And wow, man. Just under four weeks till Christmas. Um, apparently, there's 24 shopping days left. <laughs> For those of you that got any money left after Black Friday or Black Week, um, whatever it was, I'm not sure. Now, apart from all the pressure of December, um, this still has to be, um, for me and for many, just the greatest season of the calendar, a lie? Man, I'm really looking forward to some rest, some time with the family, you know what I mean, some good food, and um, probably a new gym membership come January, you know how it goes. And... Um, and while the, the, I suppose the world still, to some degree, unfaithfully celebrates Christmas, it's still a massive opportunity for the gospel, isn't it? It is. And um, now, in terms of our teaching schedule, we are taking a break from our series in the Book of John, um, Superman HD, and we're going to be resuming that in January, in the new year. Now, in our run-up to the holidays, we'll be doing a four-part Christmas mini-series. I kind of alluded to that last week. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be ramping up to Christmas. And hopefully, this is going to be helpful for all of us, you know what I'm saying, so that we don't get caught on the hop come Christmas. Like, oh my gosh, it's Christmas already. And you know what I mean, because we've been occupied with so many other things as we are. Um, and not necessarily bad things, but just stuff that can end up distracting us, you know what I'm saying, tutus, it's Christmas day, and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm not prepared to share with my family, I'm not prepared to get my own family together and do something significant, do you know what I'm saying, so hopefully this has given us, given us time um, in order that we might be well prepared come this Christmas season, amen. Now Christmas is the season of goodwill. It's normally the time of the year that's best known for giving what? For giving gifts, right? Normally it's at, it's at this time of year um, that people are most generous. What's that? You know what I mean? People, are, they tend to be most generous this time of year. I mean, even, like, even Scrooge gets challenged at Christmas. A lie? And I, I've, been, I've been called... Um, Scrooge many a time in my household. Um, but Christmas gets me. It gets you. You have to drop your guard at, at this time of the year. Amen? And lighten up. Now, I suppose normally what we would do is at this time of year, we'd often go back approximately 2,000 years um, to the time of the birth of Christ. And we talk about Joseph and Mary's angelic vision and then Joseph and Mary's you know, journey, and I'm saying down to Jerusalem from Galilee and Mary's heavy laden. And, and we talk about the birth of Jesus in a stable and he's being placed in a manger and the wise men bearing gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And, and just like we've been studying in, in the book of John, right, it's the story of God essentially becoming a man. But it doesn't stop there, dot, 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 in order to die for the sins of the world. And I'm, Christmas is really just the beginning of the story, isn't it? And I'm saying the complete story of Christmas is, 
is, is, is that God through Christ would provide the world with the gift of salvation. Now, I say all that, I say all that to say we're not going to be talking about those things in the next four weeks specifically, although they'll be referred to undoubtedly. Um, we will con- conclude, as Pastor E said, Christmas Eve talking about the, nat- the nativity story. We will do that. So we're not going to not do that. But over the next four weeks, we're going to look at Christmas from a different angle. From an Old Testament perspective, from a prophetic point of view, and this little four-part series that, that we put together as the elders. Oh, please don't tell me this ain't working. Better draw this a little closer then. This, this four-part series that, that we're doing is called The Great Giveaway. The Great Giveaway, where we will focus on four amazing gifts that God has given to us initially as, as prophetic promises, right? Stuff that he speaks about before they actually come about. Our first session in The Great Giveaway is going to be the giving of a great kingdom, the given of a great kingdom. The other three sessions are going to be the given of a great king. Then we're going to see the given of a, a great gift. And then the fourth and final one, Pastor E is going to bring up the rear. And I'm saying, and he's going to talk about the given of a great savior. Our text today is going to be Isaiah chapter 2. So if you turn there, that will be helpful. We will be seeing how years before their fulfillment, in the past, God made predictions through the prophets in the Old Testament regarding great things that he would do at a certain point in the future. We'll begin this week with the promise of a great kingdom. The giving, at this time of year, as we think about this, the giving of a great kingdom, the great giveaway. Now, yesterday I was in Sainsbury's getting some wrapping paper, trying to get it in early, trying to beat the Christmas rush, right? And maybe you'd be like, oh, Pastor Rob, Sainsbury's ain't the place to go to get wrapping paper. Anyway, it was only just free rolls, so it's all good. And I got it for two for, two for three for two, so. Over the tunnel, I'm in Sainsbury's, over the tunnel, eh, right? I hear this announcement. Um, have you noticed that a lot of adverts nowadays have American either voices or American actors, like the car one? What's it? The, 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 what's the car? The higher car one. You got the American guy, and you got the little English guy. And I'm saying, and you got the guy who does the the advert. What was it? Enterprise. And then you got the other other. What's the other advert with my man who's something another wolf? And he's like, yeah. Which one? Harvey Cartel. What, what's the advert again? D- direct line. Direct line. Direct line. All these American actors. So I'm standing up in Sainsbury's, and all of a sudden I hear this voice come over the tunnel. You know what I mean? And it's American accent and. It's like tonight, we will be we will be giving away twenty two million pounds. Forgive me if I butchered the American accent, right? And I'm like twenty two. Since we're giving away twenty two million, I thought, boy, you know what? Like the whole Lidl and Audi thing. Like like since we got to, got to, it's like drastic measures for saying twenty two million. Like, why are you giving away twenty two million pounds? And then she went on to say, oh, in the lotto rollover. And I was like, oh yeah, the national lottery. National Lottery. And it's funny because the National Lottery are getting seasonal as well. You probably might not, probably won't be able to see it from there. You probably won't be able to see anything. 
because it's just gone off, but hopefully we'll get it back. So they've got this thing, right? The National Lottery have got these adverts and they're, and they're, and they're festive. So they've got one called, if I can look at this, they've got one called the Merry Millionaire, all the, all the M's, the Merry Millionaire. And then they've got another one that's called Festive Fortune. Oh, there we go. It's the, it's the last two. You know what I'm saying? And you've got a little bit of holly and ivy or the, the, and then in, in, uh, the festive fortune. You've got this Christmas tree and a ball. They're trying to get with the Christmas vibe. How many of you know the lottery? How many of you know there are those that are bought into the notion that they may win the million pound jackpot? Um, and there are possibly hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who are more excited about a lottery win than they are aware of God's great giveaway. Now, which of the two do you think will provide more substantial of a long-term future? Are you in Isaiah chapter 2 yet? Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that at this time of year, we get an opportunity to celebrate so many things and so many wonderful things at that. Yet, Lord, it's real easy to be distracted, be distracted. And we so need your help, Lord, just to keep the main thing the main thing, not neglecting the other things, but just getting our priorities right. Lord, would you help us, I pray, um, to that end, even today, um, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 4. 1 to, one to 5. Reading from the ESV. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many peoples shall come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah is a major prophet. Not because the others are below par, right, the other prophets. It's just because he and the other major prophets, they wrote a lot. Isaiah, 66 chapters, right? They call it a mini Bible. Because there's 66 books in the Bible, right? And their prophecies, that is his major prophets, were far-reaching and had global implications. That's why they're major prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. You know what I'm saying? The minor prophets are generally shorter, particularly, obviously, in their content because they're more local and they have a narrower focus. Isaiah, major prophet, his prophetic career spans a number of years and four kings we see in chapter 1, verse 1. So major prophetic ministry, right? God's people at this time are in God's place, right? Um, 
but, but there's a bit of a problem. Because God's people are in God's place, but they're not under God's rule. But they've been enjoying God's blessing, at least for a temporary period of time. And, but recently, what they've done is they've forgotten the Lord. And you know, it's, it's, those, it's not the times when things are hard that we need to be overly concerned about forgetting the Lord. Because when times are hard, we're on our face like, like Lord, when times are hard. When t- it's, times, it's when times are good that we've got to be careful that our hearts don't turn away from the Lord, right? And... Um, God's people, they've enjoyed this time of great blessing, but recently they've forgotten the Lord. And the prophet starts his book in chapter one with a a scathing synopsis of current affairs. Although God had been a father to them, they were being terribly disobedient. In the chapter before this, in chapter one, um, starting at verse two, God says, children have I reared and brought up. Notice. But they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And this, 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 this issue of God being the Holy One comes up quite consistently throughout Isaiah. He's always referring to the Lord God as the Holy One of Israel. And, and see, because of their rebellion against the Holy One of Israel, not being like their dad, like their father, like their God, because of their rebellion, there's a dark cloud now on the horizon, and it's, a, it's the Assyrian war machine which is bent on destruction. Within 10 years, Judah's sister, Israel, will be in Assyrian captivity. And although Israel carries this, sorry, although Isaiah, the prophet, carries the, the, the theme of, of God's holiness and anticipated judgment because of their behavior, Isaiah also speaks very positively. Salvation is mentioned 25 times in his book, which is a lot considering that the other prophets all together only mention salvation nine times. Isaiah is the, he's also the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament, apart from the Psalms. And as much as, as this is a word from him to them at that time, how many of you know it's also a word for us? It's to them, but it's also for us, as hopefully we'll see in a minute. Okay. So verse 1, Isaiah chapter 2, it says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, did what? Saw. Thank you. The word that Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, the word that Isaiah saw, this was revealed to Isaiah in some kind of vision. I'm saying because this was the word he saw. Or if you like, it was a message that was communicated visually, like the Lord did very often with the Old Testament prophets. Now, Isaiah was a a prophet who was sent to speak to Judah, um, a title that described the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, hopefully that's not confusing. And I'm saying Judah, southern kingdom, 
as opposed to Israel and the northern kingdom. How many of you know the kingdom of, of Israel was actually divided at a certain point? And on the left-hand side, you can see the map where Judea, Judah is in the south and Israel is in the north. But all of it is Israel. It's just split into two sections because after King Saul, you had King David and then you had King Solomon. Because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom was split and there was division and they call it the divided kingdom. So you got you haven't got one king like you did at the beginning ruling over the whole of Israel. You've got two separate kings ruling over each section of the two sections of Israel. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The divided kingdom. And this prophecy, which will continue through chapter 2 to chapter 4, um, is directed towards the southern kingdom, Judah, and, its, and particularly its capital, Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, it shall come to pass when? In the latter days. Thank you, my sister. Appreciate your help, you know. Trust me. In the latter days, something's going to happen. There's a, there's a perspective on this um, that places this prophecy at the end of history. A time identified by some as the millennium. I think it's somewhat true. But I'd like to suggest a somewhat alternative view that sees a partial fulfillment earlier than the end. Some suggest that the phrase the latter days or the last days speaks about the very end. I'd like to argue that the last days actually started about 2,000 years ago. So that means we're in the last of the last days. You know what I'm saying? I'll give you two examples. One is in Hebrews chapter 1. It says verse 1 and 2. Long ago, says the writer of Hebrews, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He could even be referring to Isaiah's time, right? But in these last days, present tense for him 2,000 years ago, right? He has spoken to us by his son, says the writer of Hebrews, whom he appointed the heir of all things through, through, through whom also he created the world. You see what I'm saying about the last days beginning then and not necessarily at the last, last, last days. Second example, the writer is, is obviously the writer is speaking about his time frame in the first person. Um, here's another example. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 um, through to, is that 19? 18, 19. It says, <clears throat> now the disciples were being mocked, right, in Acts 2, um, as they supernaturally began to speak in different languages. That's the context of this, this section, right? So, so verse 14, Peter responds, right, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, mocking us right since it is only the third hour of the day that is nine o'clock in the morning i mean who's going to get lit nine o'clock in the morning right verse 16 but this is what was uttered through the prophet joel when in the past right and in the last days it shall be says the prophet joel 
right? God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Can you see how this Acts chapter two was partially fulfilled 2000 years ago then? I say partially because verse 19 and 20 go on to say, there we go, verse 19 and 20 <clears throat> declare something that didn't take place then and still hasn't taken place yet. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. When? Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So can you, verse 20 is talking about the, the very end when this prophecy will be completely fulfilled. So it's partially fulfilled in Acts 2, but then it's going to be completely fulfilled at the end. So, it, so if you like, it's already and not yet. Can you see that? You have the last days, days which, which began at the time of Jesus' first coming, and then you, then you have the day of the Lord, day, singular, right? Day of the Lord, which talks about Jesus' second coming now what does Isaiah say will happen back to chapter 2 verse 2 it says it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord hmm, the mountain of the house of the Lord the prophet here predicted that the mountain which bore the house of the Lord or the temple of Jehovah which was located where geographically in Jerusalem, which is in the province we saw of Judea or Judah. And it's on the Temple Mount, also known as Mount Moriah, also referred to as Mount Zion, right? as it's referred to in our text in verse 3. Here's a picture of something that I can't pronounce. That's why I put it up there so you can read it. It's the, the, the English translation of what it is is the Pope's way, and it's leading up to Mount Zion. So notice, you don't even reach there yet, but look how high you are already. Can you see that? It's, 700, it's 765 meters above sea level. And this is where Solomon's temple was. And it was Solomon's temple originally. It got destroyed, and it, and it got rebuilt right by Herod, Herod's temple also known as Solomon's temple, right? In 2 Kings, 2 Kings 24, verse 13, it says, um, and carried off all the treasures, this is when they had some drama, of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold, where? In the temple of the Lord. See, the house of the Lord and the temple of the Lord are synonymous, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. So what is so significant about this prophecy um, from Isaiah? Well, it continues in verse 2. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Hmm. So the mountain of the house of the Lord is high, but it's not the highest yet. It will be, says the prophecy, right? 
One day it will tower in actual height above all the high places of the earth. Now, I think that we either have to look at that literally or we have to look at that metaphorically. You know what I'm saying? So, if you can follow with me, Revelation chapter 21 Verse 10 says, and he carried me away in the spirit. This is John, right, when he's going to see another vision. He said, he carried me away in the spirit to a great, notice, high mountain and showed me what? The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You're like, hmm. Okay, but then look at the verse just before verse 10 in Revelation 21. It says, then came... One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then it says, verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit. And then he showed me a high mountain and showed me the holy city. So it's like the bride is a city called Jerusalem. Daniel chapter seven. I know there's a lot of verses. Daniel chapter, sorry, Daniel chapter two. Verse 31 to 35. Listen to this. Now we're going back to the Old Testament, right? He says, you saw, O king, um, I think he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar because he had this image thing, right? And behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and its, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked... A stone was cut out by no human hand. Hmm. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. How many of you know this image represents different kingdoms? as you will hear Daniel interpret, right? And, and our verse goes on to say, but the stone that struck the image became what? A great mountain and filled the whole earth. Hmm? Literally or metaphorically. Verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. He's going to give a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people and it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Hebrews chapter 12 because the Bible is like a jigsaw puzzle sometimes. You've got to put it together, right? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22 to 23 says, but Wait a minute. Speaking to believers, you have come to what? Mount Zion. It's like, but maybe some of these have never been to Israel. It's all right, because this is not talking about Israel specifically, geographically, literally. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the earthly Jerusalem? No, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge 
of all, we'll come back to that, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To take it further, then the Lord Jesus seems to make mention of the same thing in Matthew with a twist. In Matthew, Jesus says to who? The disciples. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. John then adds more color, if you like, to the picture. It's all right, for you never, just in case you never read your Bible this week, isn't it? John chapter 4, verse 20, says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You remember, John chapter 4 is Jesus with the woman at the well, right? Incredible um, revelation that Jesus gives to a woman that most people wouldn't even talk to. Because she's been married four times, and the man that she was with weren't married to him. So they were in, a, in an illicit relationship. But Jesus opens his heart and shares with her incredible revelation. It's beautiful, lovely story um, in John 4. Anyway, she now responds to Jesus' kind of revealing of, of, of wonderful things. And she says, look, because he's, he's being very spiritual. So in a sense, she, she's trying to come across like she's spiritual too. And she says, oh, yeah, our fathers, like our heritage. Like, now, she's from the north, not from the south. That's another one of the reasons why no one really wants to chat to her, right? It says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Now, this is Samaria. This is, you know what I'm saying, in a place where Jews don't really get down with the Samaritans, although because they're half Jews, right? Ain't got time. So she says, but, but you say that in Jerusalem... Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, can you see the divided, divided kingdom issues here, right? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain here, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship, issues worship. Jesus said to her, listen, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem, whoa, up until now for, for eons, for thousands of years, Jerusalem is the place. But the thing is, Jerusalem still is the place. It's just not a geographical, literal place. He says, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Because the Samaritans twisted the whole thing, like back in the day. He says, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The, like the southern kingdom was much better than the northern kingdom. And it was also from the line of, the, the line, it was also from the line of Judah would come the king. And he says, but notice, here's the big thing. But the hour is coming and is now here. Ooh, it's coming, it's now here. Like, which one is it? <laughs> it's already and it ain't yet. When the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
There's not a lot of people Jesus revealed himself to like that. But can you see that the whole thing about Jerusalem, literally, specifically, pedantically, ain't really the issue now from the words of Jesus, from the lips of Jesus. See, already and not yet. Could this Jerusalem, who do you get the impression that this Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem is? It's a bride come down from heaven, we saw in Revelation. You know what I'm saying? Jesus said, you disciples are a city set. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill. Who do you think this Jerusalem is talking about? Thank you, my brother. See, fresh back from Nigeria. The church. We missed you, bro. And I like the beard, you know. It's, it works. It works. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if Missy, Missy feels that it works. I don't know. We'll find out later. We'll know by next week if it's gone. <laughs> so the temple, she likes it, amen. The temple used to be the, notice, the temple used to be the place where God would do what? He would meet with his people because prior to it being the temple, it was called what? The tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It's the place where God met with his people. And they had to go through all of these rituals before they could even approach him. Why? Because he's the Holy One of Israel. And just as we saw from John 4, the physical temple in physical Jerusalem has been replaced with a spiritual temple, the church, in a nondescript, global, universal location everywhere. The church is already... And not yet. That is all that it will be until Jesus' second coming. How many of us struggle with the fact that we're not where we should be? But how many of you know that we will be when he comes? Because we've been justified, right? Thankfully. We're in the process of being... (laughs) Ouch. We're in the process of being sanctified... But eventually we will be what? We'll be glorified. You know what I mean? And I still can't get my head around that. Like at, at one point I'll be sinless. Every day I'm wrestling with sin. Can I get a witness? So we are already, but we're not yet. Jesus, in the, Jesus is in the process of building his church. I love this metaphor. And I mean, Matthew chapter 16. Saying this should be an encouragement to us. You know what I'm saying? He says, and I tell you, he's speaking to Peter. He says, you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, which is present continuous tense. You know what I'm saying? I will build my, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you're part of the church, you're still under construction. Can I get an Amen. Amen. And that's why we've got to bear with one another. Call that person that, in it, bruv. Man said, huh. We've got to bear with one another, Carl. We're not where we, where we ought to be. And as genuine believers, we struggle every day, don't we? Wrestling with this Lord. I'm such a joker. I'm, I'm, I'm so inconsistent. I'm so unfaithful. Lord God. You know what I mean? It's like, like Paul saying, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, 
That's what I find myself doing. And then he says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, the Lord Jesus. You know what I mean? And we die daily, don't we? Still on the construction. The church is that which replaces the physical temple as the place where God meets with his people. I mean, if you know the church ain't, go down the road, turn left, turn right, and then it's the first on your left. That's not, that's not the church. That's a building where the church meets. LCM building. We, we're struggling. To, like, every time we're like, where, 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 where are we going to have a meeting? We're going to have it at LCM. Which one? HQ, Tower Bridge, or London City Mission, Lewisham? Like, which one? And I'm... And sometimes you want to say, oh, we're having it at church. But we all I know that I've been resisting the temptation to say, yeah, we're meeting at church because this ain't the church. And we don't want to reinforce that stereotypical perspective of what church is when it ain't, right? The church is that which replaces the physical temple as a place where God meets with his people. And the building project metaphorically speaking, started in Jerusalem. You remember in Acts chapter 2? Because that's when the church did it even start then could be an argument. Because Stephen talks about the church that was in the wilderness. Because church really just, just describes the assembly of God's people, doesn't it? See, and, and this is beautiful because what that does is it helps us to see that the whole Bible is linked. You know what I'm saying? It's not separate Old Testament and then the New Testament completely distinct. It's one big story, isn't it, of God's people supposed to be in God's place under God's rule. But very often you find, like we did here in Isaiah, God's people are in his place, but they're not under his rule. You know what I'm saying? And then too, too, sometimes God's people get kicked out of God's place. Like what happened to the sister kingdom, Israel, got taken into Assyrian captivity. And because Judah didn't listen, Judah later on got taken into what type of captivity? Babylonian captivity. By the rivers of Babylon. We should probably hear that come up Christmas, right? Where we sat down, there we wept. When we remembered Zion. Because they're God's people. They've been taken out of God's place. Because they weren't under God's rule. You know what I'm saying? And now they've lost God's blessing. So we see this building project continuing Acts 2 where 3,000 like bricks are added to the church, right? But since Acts chapter 2, there's been a spreading of the church building across the globe, hasn't there? After his conversion, Paul would write letters to the church in Corinth, to the church in Galatia, to the church in Rome. Right. This would make sense of the rest of the prophecy as we look back at the end of verse 2, Isaiah chapter 2. And it says, and all the nations, don't miss that, all the nations shall what? Shall flow to it. Verse 3, and many peoples shall come and say. See, the church is the only place that reflects 
all nations and many peoples. Now, that may not necessarily be true of every single church, depending on where they're located, because some churches like, like Brother Bertrand has come back from Nigeria, and I'm saying most of the churches in Nigeria are probably going to be predominantly black, right? Which stands to reason. But then churches in the UK, particularly in places like London, ought to reflect the community, right? To some degree. Is it fair to say that? You know what I mean? And, um, and yet it's a battle. It's a struggle for nations to dwell together in unity. You know what I'm saying? But it is happening. I'd like to suggest that it's, it happens, it's happening here. You know what I mean? We can praise the Lord for that. You know, different nations coming together. But fundamentally, it's never going to happen anywhere. United Nations ain't going to do it. The only place it's genuinely going to take place is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's only Jesus breaks down the middle wall of partition between man and God. But then he also breaks down the middle wall of partition between, thank you, between man and man. Only the Lord Jesus, only the cross can do that. Only the cross can make someone say, you know, I should hate you, but I forgive you. It's only the cross that allows for individuals who, sometimes even for legitimate reasons, would be enemies, are brought together by the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus. So the church is the only place that really reflects all the nations and many peoples. And do you remember that? That was God's original purpose when he called Abraham. And, and he calls him the father of many nations. In Genesis 12, wow, we looked at this last week at school. That's why it's fresh in my mind. Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, incredible, incredible promise. God says, he says, and the Lord said to Abram, ain't Abraham yet, right? He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And how many of you know he did that? God is faithful to his word, right? And I will bless you, Abraham, Abram, and, and make, you, make your name great. How many of you know God done that? Because we're here in London, South London, you know what I'm saying? Talking about a man called Abram. I would say God made his name great, even if it was just for that reason. But it's not. It's multiplicity of other reasons. He says, so that you will be a blessing. See, I'm making your name great, not just so you can be great, but, just, but so that you can be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Like, don't play with God. And, and in you, Abram, notice, not some, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Oh, wow. And then in Genesis 26, God makes the same promise, but not to Abraham, but he says he makes it to Isaac, his son. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, notice, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I mention that because in our text, it's going to talk a little bit about a little bit in a minute about the house of Jacob. Because remember, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's talking about God's people. Plus, this doesn't make sense if it's taken literally, 
It only makes sense when taken metaphorically. Not that God is going to bless Abraham and the nations through him. Not that, because that's literal. You know what I'm saying? But with reference to what we're looking at in Isaiah 2. How many of you know that streams don't flow uphill? Because it just said that the nations are going to stream, are going to flow into this Jerusalem. Or rivers don't flow up, especially up did I say 685 meters above sea level? <laughs> Micah chapter 4 echoes the, f- the same sentiment. And it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, echoing what Isaiah says, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. So I'm suggesting that's metaphorical. This would describe the supernatural power of God, actually drawing people up into the kingdom of God. Not just because it's a high literal place, but it's a hard place to get into. It's actually impossible to get into. Apart from God working a miracle, bringing an individual into his kingdom. Taking them out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. This describes the supernatural power of God. And it's also a picture of a steady stream of people constantly flowing, as it were, into the temple of God, into the church, which is what has been happening for the past 2,000 years, I would argue. Middle of verse 3, Isaiah 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. See, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God's people, metaphorically speaking, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Zechariah 8, amazing. There are eschatological references to Jerusalem and to Zion, right? Just like we've been seeing here in Isaiah. So eschatological, like future predictions of it being a faithful city, a holy city, the mountain of the Lord, all similar language, a city into which God would save many, it says in Zechariah 8. And there are themes of judgment and salvation, joy and gladness. Zechariah 8, let me just give you a quick excerpt. You read through the whole chapter, it's amazing. It says from verse 20 to 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples, singular or plural, peoples shall yet, shall yet come. Even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. (laughs) Many peoples, verse 22, many peoples, plural, and strong nations, plural, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts. Where? In Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days. Ten men from the nations, and I think this is metaphorical, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. I'm arguing that these are references to the already and not yet references to the church and to the sharing of the gospel and individuals coming to Mount Zion, flowing, as it were, in as a steady stream up to the mountain of the Lord, which is the church. 
at least today it is. Back then it was more literal. There's overwhelming evidence to prove that this is speaking about the church age, the current 2,000 years and beyond. Look at the end of verse 3. For out of Zion, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord. I mean, how do we make sense of these Old Testament passages? And I'm saying, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Think old Jerusalem and then think new Jerusalem, the church, right? Verse four, he, speaking of the Lord, shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's also a strong argument to suggest that all of this is actually happening now, but also not yet. It's happening on a a micro sense now, where many who are already in the invisible kingdom of God are experiencing God's government, God's rule, right? In their own lives, in in their marriages, in their homes, and, and how many of us as believers, that's what, that's what we're striving for, isn't it? As husbands, as men, like, we're like, oh, Lord, you know, I want to be like Joshua. I want to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But how many of you, how many, is, it's a struggle. I've got, I, I got, I, I got both hands in the air. You know what I mean? It's a battle, isn't it, fellas? Come on now. You know what I mean? And, and ladies, you know what I'm saying? As, 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 uh, thank you. Ladies, as, as, you know what I'm saying? As, as godly women, I know that most of you are praying for your husbands. And it's not that it's their responsibility, full stop. But it's their primary responsibility. You've got to be like Adam, like Dean, who just got married. Dean, wagwan. <laughs> With the relationship and the children. You know what I mean? Woo. And it's a challenge, isn't it? But, but what we're trying to do is we're praying and we're on our knees and we're crying out to God for it to happen in our children and in our, in our, in our spouses and, and, and in our own lives that God's rule would come. That's what, that's, that's what we're desiring, isn't it? And, 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 and some have, they've put down their swords and they've, and they've put down their spears, right? Some, have, some have, have come into the kingdom of God and they've, you know what I'm saying? They, they, they put down their guns and they've put down their knives. Remember Nicky Cruz? What, what, was this, what was the book that was written about Nicky Cruz and the film? Cross, the cross and the switchblade. Now, you don't know about switchblade nowadays. It's a bit like me talking about ratchet. Anybody remember ratchet? <laughs> Nobody don't know what ratchet is. No one don't know what switchblade is. But they're types of knives, right? And um, Nicky Cruz put it down. By the grace of God. You know what I mean? And, oh, there he is. There's Nicky Cruz, 1958. You could tell he was a bad man, innit? And how about the other brother? His name is Simon Pinchbeck. Um, a, few, a few weeks ago, you know, sometimes you, maybe you don't see me around. Um, there's a guy called Roger Carswell. And he has a ministry called Real Lives. And he goes to churches all around the country, probably 48 weeks of the year. I mean, from time to time, he'll invite me to come and share my testimony. And he'll interview me. And some Sundays, that's why I'm not around. Um, and so he, he invited me just back in September. And over the course of a week, 
they'll do real lives and they'll interview different people. So let's say we've done a real lives. Maybe one, 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 one year we'll do this, you know what I'm saying? And we'll have different people on, a, on, on every night of the week being interviewed by Roger Carswell. And so you had, you had Fiona Castle. Remember you guys, Roy Castle? Anybody want to be a record breaker? Right, Roy, his wife, they interviewed her one night. And um, one day they interviewed, they interviewed me, you know what I'm saying? And the night before they interviewed me, they interviewed Simon Pinchbeck. Simon Pinchbeck, um, he was an ex-policeman come gangster criminal who then became a Christian. I mean, what a testimony that must be, right? You can actually go on, I think it's Red, is it Redbourne? Christchurch Redbourne, I think, .org or .co.uk on their website. And you can see the talks on there if you want to listen to it, of him kind of sharing his testimony. Real, real lives. Individuals who have put down their swords and have put down their spears. Already. But how many of you know, it's not complete yet. So that's on an individual level. Even on a larger national level, level with reference to war. How many of you know the gospel has had incredible influence, historically speaking? So there are examples on a micro scale and in the, and, and in the here and now, right? That's in the already. But then you have the, the not yet, which is the fulfillment of these verses in verse 4. In a future, more extensive and conclusive sense. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? From Isaiah 2. And, and look, look, let's look at the, the conclusive sense. The end, if you like. And see what it's going to look like. When this is fulfilled. Not just in the already and the not yet. But then. You know what I mean? Revelation chapter 21. Verse 1 to 4 says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible starts off with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, verse 3, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. See, God's people in God's place. And God himself will be with them as their God. They're under God's rule. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Talk about the great giveaway. You know, so we're talking about God giving us the gift of, an, of a kingdom. How does this compare to the gifts that we're running around to grab at Christmas time? Not that they're not important, but in terms of priority, he said it will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How many of you know God comforts us now, doesn't he? I mean, think about Sister Rachel and Marky and Mummy, the funeral just this week. And I'm saying, thankfully, so many of the family believers, so, so, it's so wonderful, and I'm saying, as a minister to have to do a funeral and know that many of the people are believers. Do you know what I mean? Such a comfort. Because you know that they're being comforted. They're being comforted in, in ways that, that people can't experience. Jesus gives peace in a way that the world can't give it. You know what I mean? And, and so it, already we're experiencing, aren't we? A wiping away of the tears. But then...
What's it going to be like to not have to cry apart from for joy? No crying, no pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. The house of Jacob, the offspring of Abraham, the modern day church. How many of you know he's currently walking in the light of the Lord, but there's still a bit of darkness in it. Because we see through a veil dimly. And we don't have all the answers, but we're walking in some of the light, aren't we? By God's grace. And he's challenging us on every level. I feel like every week I'm like, Lord, another challenge. I'm like, Lord, you know what I'm saying? Another area where I just see that I'm so sinful. Lord, have mercy. Thank you for Jesus (laughs) and the grace that we find in him. You know what I mean? We're currently trying to walk in the light of the Lord, aren't we? But we'll do so in in a way that eclipses anything that we can understand at this point. First Corinthians says, I has not seen, ear has not heard. Notice, I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. But then the verse goes on to say, but he has revealed it to us by his spirit. That is a glimpse. And, I'm, and you know, sometimes... You know, maybe once or twice in a week you get a glimpse of that and it gives you hope. You know what I'm saying? And it steadies you in a world that's constantly rocking. It just momentarily steadies you, doesn't it? And we're so grateful for those moments. Thank you, Lord, when times are difficult and challenging. We're walking in the light of the Lord, but at a certain point we're going to walk in Can't even, I can't even grasp what that's going to be like. And our last verse. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 through to 24. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will nations walk, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 5. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. The great giveaway. The giving of a great kingdom. I'm going to ask you to Just join with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful Christmas season. Thank you that globally, pretty much the majority of of society globally, Lord, at least sees, if not identifies, recognizes, or even celebrates this season. And we're thankful for that. And Easter is coming, just a few months away. It'll be here before we know it. The two major, most significant celebrations, at least in the West. (laughs) And amazingly, Lord, what we're seeing is you're bringing people from 
the eat from the Middle East in literally like streams of a river. Like people are flowing into the West, into an environment where we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ. And we celebrate the death of Christ because that's why he was born. He was born to die. And Father, I just want to ask that you would help us, Lord, since we still have the blessed benefit of the celebration of Christmas. Christmas, it's not Winterfest, it's Christmas. Christ's Mass. And Father, while we still have green, evergreen trees that talk about your perpetual existence, you never fade. And Lord, while we have the blessed benefit of the giving of gifts from way back in the 4th century, St. Nicholas, who gave gifts to, the, to children at a time when no one cared about them. Lord, we have so many elements at Christmas that remind us of who you are. Lord, would you help us not to get caught up in the trappings? Lord, we're going to be involved in the trappings. It's all good. But Lord, help us not to get so caught up that we forget, Lord, that the greatest gift always comes from you. And Lord, the the danger for us, Lord, is because it's invisible. The visible always trumps the invisible because we're natural and carnal. Lord, would you help us to see how that which is invisible is much more important than that which is visible. And Lord, in our own hearts, Lord, be really, really grateful for what you did for us in the Lord Jesus at Christmas. And that you gave us the most precious gift that, that we could ever have received. And Lord, as we, as we allow you to be our focus, Lord, we will have the most wonderful Christmas. Because Lord, you flood our hearts with your love and, our, and your compassion and your grace. And Lord, you're the greatest giver. What's that going to make us? Lord, we talk about Israel being unholy when you are holy, Lord. Lord, if we're going to be holy like you're holy, Lord, you're the greatest giver. We just saw that. And it's just one element of that which you've given, Lord. What's that going to, it's going to make us the best givers, Lord. And you said, this, Jesus said, it's better to give than it is to receive. Help us to have that. This comes from you, Lord. People make these, they, they, Lord, these statements are made by people who are not even believers who don't know you, never read the Bible. How powerful is your word, Lord? How all-pervasive, Lord, is your influence. And we thank you that you've influenced us. But, but Lord, we know we need, we need more of your influence because we're living in the already but the not yet, Lord. And we still need to change, Lord. Would you help us? And we're grateful, Lord, because only you can do all that I've prayed, plus all that my brothers and sisters are praying in their own hearts right now. Only you can do it by the the power of your spirit, who just works on multiple levels, multiple layers, at multiple times. You're you're incredible, Lord, and, and we praise you this afternoon. And thank you that you are the one who gives the greatest gifts. Thank you for the great giveaway. You're so kind and we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.